Hopefully this oh, is being recorded. <laughs> it does it does show it because I see on the left upper hand part it says recording with the little dot. Do you see it? I do. Yes, okay. I see it now. Okay, great. Awesome. Yep, uh-huh. I got it. Got it. Thank you. Thank you, Edna, for um troubleshooting our, <laughs> our interview today. <laughs> Thanks, sir. We're going to have to pay you a little bit extra for tech support. <laughs> I know. I've been on a lot of Zoom calls these days. So. Yeah. Good Good for you because, like I said, I've been avoiding I've been avoiding them. Like, from school, I've been getting all these invites for meetings and stuff, and I'm just like, yeah, I'm not going to do that today. Um, I have not I've not yet embraced the the pandemic reality that everything now has to be done on Zoom. Um, apparently, like... And it's interesting too because even when you when you watch um, other YouTube shows that normally use a different program to record their interviews, they're now all using Zoom too. So everyone has just picked up Zoom and switched over to that. Um, so anyway, speaking of picking things up, let's get on with our interview. I'm Wendy Mutes, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, we have a discussion once again about the Rona, but from a very unique perspective. We'll be speaking with a special guest, whom I'll describe in just a moment. But first, I'd just like to remind everyone to check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and wherever you get your social media. Of course, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spreaker, and wherever you get your podcasts. And last but not least, to check us out on Patreon, where you can find not only free episodes of the podcast, and of course, everything is free on our Patreon, but also additional resources such as reading lists, readings themselves, and all sorts of other goodies. You can find us there at patreon.com slash leftpoc, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. And of course, leftpoc is how can you can find us on all spaces online. Now on with the show. Today, we speak with Edna Bunna, who's a historian, lecturer, and writer whose work interrogates the archaeology of post-colonial science, embodiment, and surveillance in the Middle East and North Africa. A central question of her work asks, what makes people sick? As a researcher, she answers this question by exploring the spaces and modalities of care and toxicity that shape the possibility for repair using testimony and counter-archives. Her dissertation, Plagued Bodies and Spaces, explored the history of epidemics in North Africa and the Middle East. Edna earned her PhD in history from Princeton University in 2017 and is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science, and she currently lives in Berlin, Germany. She has written for Al Jazeera, The Baffler, The Nation, and several other publications. You can follow her on Twitter at Jacobinoir, which we will spell out and have in the show notes. Also, I just want to say, please check out the show notes. As per always, they contain excellent articles and information. But in this case, almost all of the articles we list are actually from our special guests. So please check them out. She has a lot of amazing work. And you'll be sorely mistaken if you don't take a read or two. So definitely check that out. Please accept my apologies for all of the technical difficulties. As you could hear from our opening, we had quite a few. We had to switch from multiple formats of recording this. So there are a few moments when the recording jumps and skips. And we have just some generally bad audio this time around. But please don't hold it against us. This is a great interview. I hope you all enjoy it. Thanks. Thanks. 
So first of all, I just want to say thanks so much, Edna, for being with us. And I really look forward to our discussion because you've got a mix of some historical stuff um, as well as some, some contemporary stuff and a lot of really interesting things that relate to um, kind of linking the past and present with regard to our current situation. Um, but the first of those questions that I have actually is if you could get us started by talking about your doctoral research um, and sort of what you're doing now, because I know that you've had some shifts over time. Um, and I'd be curious to know kind of, um, you know, first where your research began, how it got started, what it is now, um, and how you think it connects to our current conditions. So first of all, I just want to say that I commend you for the work that you guys do. And thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation, especially in the midst of a pandemic. And I know a lot of people are finding it difficult, especially with childcare and other kinds of responsibilities. So um, thank you for um, taking the time um, to put this, uh, put this out there. And I guess I, I want to start a bit by saying, at least with my doctoral dissertation, it's very much a, a circuitous route. So, I did my PhD in history at Princeton University, and the dissertation that I, I worked on was called Plague, Bodies, and Spaces, looking at the bubonic plague and uh, epidemics more broadly in Egypt, Tunisia, and North Africa. And it seems a bit of a kind of anomaly for myself, a Black Asian American, to have uh, jumped into that topic. But it very much relates to my personal and political history. Uh, on one hand, I, as someone who grew up in the United States, uh, with Asian immigrant parents, had to witness in some ways the uh, ways in which Asians were being and uh, perceived to be vectors of disease, specifically with the HIV AIDS crisis, and how that HIV AIDS in many ways became the modern plague. And so for me, ideas and conceptual, conceptions about diseases and how they flourish very much was tied to how people within my background were seen as um, per perhaps spreading a certain kind of epidemic. And then beyond that, uh, my interest in studying the Middle East and North Africa very much stemmed from the very horrible event of the United States invading Iraq in 2003, and wanting to understand a region that had been demonized by uh, the US a bit more. And, and, and part of what, for me, was very, uh, very discouraging about the U.S. militarization project is how it not only caused the, the death and lives of so many people, but that that militarization has also contributed to a very much of a, a public contamination and exposure to toxic metals. Um, and according to uh, the Sharif al-Awashi uh, of the Battle Center in southern Iraq, um, there have been escalating cancer rates since the U.S. invasion of Iraq because of depleted uranium, some weapons, etc. So the the kind of horror that the, the country that I was born in has and how it's been causing a kind of medical um, apartheid and uh, a kind of increased uh, uh, morbidity and mortality in the Middle East and North Africa is something I, I kind of wanted to engage in. But I didn't want to just look at the, the suffering of the region. I also wanted to understand the history of intellectual formations of medicine and science and how they actually emerge from that region. Uh, so reading the works of Ibn Sina, the canon of medicine, but also looking at health studies in the context of um, current scholars like Soya uh, Bayoumi, who is at Harvard University, Khaled Fahmi, who's written on medical examinations and autopsies in Egypt, 
Uh, Mara Shafri just looked at the ways which we understand ideas about Darwin in the Middle East and what that uh, looks like. Um, so there's so much work that has been done, um, both in like the medieval period, but also today. So the dissertation work stems from me engaging in a very active way with some of that material and trying to undo the, the violent nature of U.S. imperialism through scholarship, through making organic connections with people on the ground, and to actually go to the archives in the region. So I spent time going to the archives in, in Tunisia and, and, and Egypt, as well as in France and, and, and UK, um, and here in Germany, where I currently live. And it's in the, the process of going through the archives that one can, that I saw that there is a set of plague epidemics that were happening in the 18th century. Sometimes they were attributed to uh, trade. Sometimes they were attributed to divine spirits. Sometimes they were attributed to uh, colonialism. And part of what I wanted to do is to see what was the relationship between events such as the Napoleon expedition of 1798 and the bubonic plague outbreaks that happened around that time, um, while also thinking about what were the medical institutions that were already in place in the um, in Egypt, for example, in Alexandria and in Tunis, and what did public health or what I call uh, proto public health reforms look like in that period? Um, so the dissertation very much is or what was focusing on some of those elements, the, the kind of intellectual traditions amidst tragedies, but also how what people consider to be um, Greco-Roman um, medicine uh, and how Arab scholarship kind of helped to push that forward um, to what we consider to be modern medicine today. And I think part of why looking at epidemics then matters so much is because it had it featured into liturgical text. It featured into the popular imagination. People wrote poems about it, um, and it also is something that has, is well documented. So, looking at, for example, my case, shipping records, trade records, I could see that the plague outbreak of 1798 and the plague outbreak of 1831 uh, uh, very much was important for determining who could enter into port cities such as Tunis and who, could, who would have to leave. It very much determined uh, what kinds of border regimes would eventually form. Um, there was a way in which certain bodies were being managed, uh, particularly the bodies of enslaved people. Um, and there was also a way in which uh, new hierarchies about uh, particularly when the British and the French eventually colonized North Africa, new hierarchies of quarantine were also being put into place through the International Sanitary uh, Commission and, and, and beyond. So part of what I try to unpack is what is the trajectory and the lineage of, of uh, medical governance? How did people um, it, it put it into place? And to what extent do, does power um, very much get in, in, encapsulated into some of these dynamics? Um, since the dissertation, I've been working um, as a postdoctoral fellow at the Vatican Institute for History of Science. And in some ways, the work that I did for my dissertation, while albeit very enriching, um, is not the only kind of work that I want to do. In fact, I've tried to sustain uh, thinking more globally in my, my work, thinking more in terms of the 
help the people who are living today, particularly in Europe, who might be accessing uh, healthcare here, uh, specifically Black folk, migrants, etc., and using um, I, uh, the interviews, particularly interviewing um, African diaspora people who um, have had um, a wide range of uh, medical. Uh, experiences here in Europe um, and also trying to document as much as possible uh, the extent to which ideas about uh, sickness and um, illness creates various anxieties um, and so that is meant that I have been trying to as best as I can to also think about healing as a mode of praxis um, by that and more naturopathic healing um, and also how people, especially someone like Audrey Lord, who lived in Berlin, uh, came here as a site of refuge uh, when she was dealing with cancer treatments and trying to uh, build a certain kind of community. So the, there's been a trajectory from a kind of straightforward historical work that I was very much interested in, one that was political in nature and also narrative, to having more of an interdisciplinary project one that is also thinking actively about uh, you know, working with medical anthropologists in some cases and with filmmakers and artists here in, in Berlin. So one thing that you mentioned um, kind of had me thinking a lot about what's going on now with regard mm -hmm. to U.S. empire. Um, you mentioned that part of what had kind of spurred your work was the war in Iraq or the invasion of Iraq to be more specific. Um, and at least in terms of the region that you decided to focus on. And it immediately made me start thinking about Yemen, um, especially because, you know, one of the things prior to the pandemic that kept coming out about Yemen was not only starvation, of course, um, that had come about because of the invasion, um, the US-backed and, and Saudi-led invasion, but also um, a ca many cases of cholera. And I started thinking well in advance of the pandemic, you know, what are the ways that empire helps exacerbate um, health conditions on the ground um, and problems on the ground with regard to to public health and um, and I also was thinking a bit about the origins of science um, specifically because when we think about when we think about modern science and modern medicine uh, while it's often attributed to Europeans a lot of that stuff including mathematics actually came from the Arab world and North Africa um, and was then you know uh, kind of kind of traveled, it then traveled to uh, to Europe and other parts of the world. And so I'm wondering kind of what does it mean for you as a scholar of this kind of history when you look at, um, I guess what I would call like progress interrupted or a type of, a type of um, you know, a, a handicapping, if you will, of, of um, medical and scientific research and knowledge and how that interruption is then sort of recaptured later on by the population in some way and what that means um, to kind of go back and harken back to uh, older practices that in actuality might be more, I don't know, more advanced or progressive than what was then um, put in place by the empire or the, the imperial power. Yeah, so I'm going to start backwards with um, talking about the origins of science and its relationship to empire and how that very much hinders <laughs> the kind of work that was being done in uh, what is now termed the global south and then uh, talk about Yemen. I guess one, one thing to start off with is like I absolutely agree that things like mathematics, algebra, <laughs> and beyond and, and even just uh, some basic anatomy uh, very much came from 
what is North Africa, the Middle East, and Western Asia. And a lot of that scholarship is being translated in, um, from Greek into uh, Arabic, and then eventually uh, people who were involved in what is uh, now called the Renaissance and the Enlightenment borrowed some of that stuff from uh, people from um, uh, the Middle East and North Africa. And so the, there is a way in which imperialism hindered some of that scholarship, but even beyond the Middle East and North Africa, I think it's also important to think about how there was and is currently uh, very much medical practices that are being exercised in, on the broader African continent, specifically West Africa, Madagascar, Southern Africa, and how many of the herbal and plant medicines that uh, are very much important for healing and have been taken up by pharmaceutical companies have been stolen, <laughs> ultimately. In fact, uh, Abena de Oseo Asare in Bitter Roots uh, very much documents some of those dynamics, how the periwinkle, which has been used for leukemia, uh, emerges from Madagascar. Um, the bitter roots that are used in West Africa have been useful uh, for malaria, uh, or how the hodea has been also useful for combating hunger. And so the ways in which we understand uh, knowledge and medical knowledge or scientific knowledge and how it often gets uh, wrongly aligned with European achievements. So people will learn about Newton, they'll learn about Einstein, they'll learn about Copernicus, but they don't often learn about the philosophers named or unnamed uh, who come from uh, Latin America, the African continent, uh, Asia, etc. And, and part of that is by design, I would say. Um, and this is why historians of science were committed to a kind of radical science of the people, one that is um, that takes into consideration the range of sources, not just textually based, but those that point to uh, materials uh, that have moved, that have circulated, and how people as individuals can actually, um, from the cultures and, and societies that are often erased, um, be uh, living archives. Uh, so beyond that, I, I would also say that you're absolutely right that the, the war in Yemen, which began the Saudi, -led, oh, Saudi Arabian led war against Yemen, which began in 2015, uh, thus far has um, displaced at least 2 million people. Um, and it has caused a horrific um, uh, epidemic in Yemen, the cholera epidemic, alongside with everything from malnutrition um, and other forms of illness and uh, increased maternal mortality. And one of the things that I've, I've, I've actually written about, uh, at least in the past couple of years, is the relationship between the imperial machine uh, machine in uh, Saudi Arabia and how it has used uh, Yemen in many ways for years as a, a, a place of cheap labor and a kind of a place that has had ethno-religious tensions as well. And the war um, has been one way in which we see a, a major exacerbation of huge uh, health inequalities. I think one of the things that has been particularly egregious is that uh, while the Saudi Arabia, as well as the Europe, uh, United Arab Emirates, um, have participated in that ongoing war, they've also 
surprisingly donated uh, money to the World Health Organization to provide health services to Yemen, as opposed to doing the work of stopping the world, the war altogether. So there's this weird um, kind of relationship where neocolonialism and war also comes with this uh, humanitarian aid and this uneven financial relationship that accentuates uh, poverty and illness in the region. So it, it's this it, imperialism as it operates in the Yemeni context with the cholera epidemic looks different than what is happening in Iraq with uh, higher rates of cancer because of the U.S. invasion, which looks different from, for example, Haiti, where the U.N. occupation there uh, contributed to a cholera epidemic, but they all have something in common, which is as soon as you disrupt uh, people's ability to move, live, um, if they're being bombed and occupied by military regimes, it very much contributes to a lower uh, quality of life. Um, people aren't able to fully live, breathe, and, and move through space in the way that they're meant to. Uh, so if, if one is going to be in a true kind of um, uh, humanitarian of any sort, just even on a liberal sense, one has to actually be, be anti-war uh, because if people don't have their health and access to actual uh, care, then um, their humanity just slowly, slowly diminishes. So with regard to being anti-war, obviously that's like a baseline, I would hope, uh, for most people. Yeah. But although I think that that is often missing, right? I think that sometimes that's the side of the story that's not spoken of um, in terms of understanding how to fix things, right? They, some people sort of frame, at least in the media, um, frame the war as the solution as opposed to the cause of the problems um, and the exacerbation of the problems. Um, I'm curious, though, on that note, what have been, in your research um, in particular, what have been the responses uh, not only to empire, but of course the disruption, of, as you mentioned, um, of, of healing practices and things like that by the populations that you studied. Um, and, and I know, you know, of course, I'm, you're, you're working with multiple places, multiple ethnic groups, um, multiple timelines. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, feel free to be um, as descriptive or, or not on this front, because I understand that there's a very diverse range um, that I'm asking you about, and I don't expect all of the responses to be the same. Um, but if you could sort of categorize and talk a little bit about um, the ways that people did uh, react to these to this interruption or disruption of daily life, um, and in particular healing practices, and then also um, kind of building on that, how did they respond to specific concerns that arose um, with the entrance of empire? Because obviously some of those health-related um, issues were going to be different than what they were facing in their normal quotidian um, existences. Yeah, so I would say that with respect to I'll start off with the work that I've done for my dissertation and the project that I started off with uh, at the Max Planck Institute, which is thinking about Egypt, uh, Libya, and uh, Tunisia as a kind of uh, active laboratory for European empire in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, especially as with the Egyptian case, it was subjected to the British protectorate uh, as of 1882. And in that context, while not a full settler colonial um, imperial context as it was the case in Algeria, it was enough to render um, certain set of hospitals, particularly Alexandria, there were very different hospitals depending on 
people's religious status that were suddenly developed. So the sense under European imperialism, the uh, medicalization could be stratified and sectarian. Um, so that was one element. Another element being, in some cases, for example, in Libya, Libya recently looking at um, after the Libyan uh, colonization, or after the Italian colonization of Libya, apologies, uh, which started in 1914, there was an effort to have a settler population, Italian settler population there, and so they had Italian hospitals, laboratories, etc., but it was segregated. So Libyans did not have access to those resources, and in many cases, um, were forced off of their land and um, and then pushed in um, inward into the hinterland, and so that the imperial project there meant that there was what I, and I, this is a term by Harriet Washington, African American scholar, uh, medical apartheid. So there was a, an overt uh, kind of effort to separate medical facilities in the Libyan case. Tunisia was a bit different. Um, there was a bit more autonomy for them compared to Algeria with respect to medical facilities, etc. And one of the things that I, I, I find, and this isn't unique to Tunisia, but the, the French, as early as the 18, late 1800s, when they were developing the Pasteur Institute, they also, like Tunis had, had one, as well as Madagascar and other parts of uh, the, 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 the French colonies. And so there was a bit more semi-independence with respect to scholarship, but it wasn't full independence and full um, uh, relegation to their own autonomy. So looking for me, what's been important, at least looking at that 19th century context, is to see to what extent in these local contexts, whether it's in Egypt, whether it's in Libya, whether it's in Tunisia, uh, is there a uh, national autonomy? To what extent are people able to uh, exercise um, traditional medicine into the new emergent biomedical facilities? And to what extent um, uh, are those things imposed? And what does that actually look like? Um, what I find, and this is also the case today, is that traditional healing practices that were tied to amulets um, to cu uh, not cupping per se, but other forms of, of, of magic, ostensibly, um, don't necessarily enter into biomedical spaces or hospitals uh, in the ways that they were practiced like two, three hundred years ago. So unlike, for example, with um, traditional Chinese medicine, which has been kind of established as a practice, uh, there isn't that same equivalence within North Africa and the Middle East. So the, there, the colonial project as it's operated in the region has meant that what is often considered to be uh, socially acceptable formal medicine is, is tied to uh, a biomedical practice that has a lineage and outside of the traditional practices that might have been experienced. It doesn't necessarily mean that people are practicing other things, uh, but just that it isn't uh, officially recognized in the way that, for example, traditional Chinese medicine has been accepted as a practice like acupuncture, cupping, etc. So, um, so like in some ways, healing practices are are very much political, and they're also an aftermath of what 
the extent to which colonial projects were implemented into the North African context. I think one element that is particularly interesting to look at and is um, somewhat understudied, um, but not necessarily um, uh, fully, is the question around uh, psychiatry, mental illness, and, and, and madness. Um, within the region and how we understand that in the colonial context and, and beyond. And uh, in the context of Lebanon, for example, uh, a colleague of mine, Lamia Mobia, who's uh, a medical anthropologist, social worker, has looked at the ways in which psychiatry featured in the mandate period, so the period in which the French um, exercised their uh, semi-rule uh, in Lebanon, uh, as well as how that ideas about trauma and psychiatry uh, impact people who live through the Lebanese Civil War. I think in some ways that, um, that kind of research is exciting because it is diachronic and it looks at ideas about expertise. It looks at how people express emotions and distress and how the colonial aftermaths very much impact what people are experiencing um, today. So um, the, the question around the asylum and what function that serves, and particularly the modern asylum, is one that I think um, can speak to the, the various <laughs> complexities of colonialism. And, and it's no accident, actually, that you know, Franz Fanon, as a psychiatrist who was based in, um, in Algeria, could see how damaging the French colonial project was to Algerians, and could witness documents and, and and really get to the core of the physical illness <laughs> that, uh, that the colonialism provided. So, in, but given that, I don't, I don't think the thing that makes psychiatry and mental illness um, so complex is that there's not a magic bullet. Uh, it's not like, well, if I have um, cholera, um, then I just have to have access to clean water, take an antibiotic, and then hopefully rest. Uh, with mental illness and the kind of long array of trauma and how it wears on people, uh, the, the healing practices um, that, and solutions that people propose may not always be immediate. And it, it is something that is challenging to, to study in a kind of humane way especially with living subjects or if, and, and in an ethical way if, um, if there are materials that uh, hinder people's privacy. So yeah, so all this just to say that there's so many complexities and layers to what colonialism does in, with respect to the formation of science and medicine, as well as how people take that up depending on the local context. And then beyond that, um, healing might not be such a straightforward thing, especially when it comes to mental illness, um, psychiatry, and, and madness more broadly. So I wanted to just comment on a few things that uh, I thought has been very enlightening thus far. I think you've done an amazing job of really kind of capturing the all-encompassing nature of the kind of racial tension or the racialism of the medical uh, practices around the world and then scientifically speaking as well and just how kind of overwhelming it can be for uh, different cultures and societies uh, throughout history and around the globe and that is just I mean it's it's almost overwhelming for me emotionally to think about just how much is lost uh, to, to us today as a result of all of that and then and just how much harm was caused also and then 
I one of the other things that just stuck out to me, particularly was towards your last point, was about the kind of medical apartheid and the racialized medicine, especially in the mental uh, illness field. Just because even in like in Western medicine, we're still very experimental and still discovering and trying to understand these things and take a much more pharmacological approach versus a, a somewhat more holistic group approach that you may see in some of these other groups that have been damaged by these type of imperialist practices. Mm -hmm. And we also find that while there's some benefit to the pharma pharmacological aspects that it's when combined with a more holistic approach that these uh, kind of illnesses are uh, addressed. And then also just the categorization of different types of illnesses and how they're perceived and understood and the domination of kind of the Western philosophy of understanding them versus the kind of cultural context that they have within the, these groups is so different and to understand and to hear those kinds of concepts reinforced in the way that you're discussing has been enlightening. I guess one of the questions that kind of came to my mind was uh, you did talk about uh, Yemen uh, and what's going on there. And one of the aspects that you mentioned, some of the reading that uh, you provided was uh, about the water and the cholera. And I couldn't help but also think about how we're seeing parallels with the Navajo nation and uh, not having water and how that's directly affecting them amid this current uh, thing, uh, current situation. I just wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Wow, yeah, that's a lot. So um, full disclosure, I guess I'll go in the middle and then backwards, <laughs> which is with the middle. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's because you, you touch upon so many um, different topics that resonate with me so on a personal level and beyond um, and I would say with the mental illness thing that my, my brother is schizophrenic and has been for some years and the, the ways in which um, for dealing with that uh, as a family member as a loved one and how the, the mental health system in the United States is absolutely ineffective and and this is in Miami <laughs> Miami Florida where um, the state has done very little to prioritize the, the health care of working class black people. And if anything, um, I would agree that, you know, of course there's a this like pharma there's a pharmacological kind of benefit that can help to reside some of the major issues that arise from something like schizophrenia, but it is not the solution, like the full solution. If anything, the societal damage of being a black person in America and how that creates this psychosis of growing up poor and having immigrant parents not being expected to um, succeed or to like um, have your mind encouraged in a particular kind of way um, is, is parallel to some of the, the effects that exacerbate stuff like like what's schizophrenia so figuring out i would say a kind of humanistic transformative collective form of healing is something that um i think people are now learning to to look at and and to also use perhaps the traditional forms of practices like as a Haitian person of Haitian descent um, I'm I'm doing the work of excavating uh, the different forms of healing that are related to herbal medicine so talking to my elders and my family my aunts like what is this tea used for what is that plant useful for and also just like destigmatizing things like voodoo uh, Haitian voodoo which has like growing up was absolutely destigmatized but also comes with uh, some of those herbal practices that are about um, embodied and, and, and finding peace and resonance with oneself. So, um, yeah, like the, the question around mental illness, healing, and the, the, the many layers to it, and like 
advocating for a holistic um, approach is something that I very much have been um, on a journey uh, to discover for myself as well as through the people that I love and care about. With respect to the Navajo Nation and water, so I, I was at Sandy Rock um, back in 2016 uh, when uh, there was a huge push to get people uh, there to challenge the, the Dakota Access Pipeline from extending there. And being present and seeing the kind of self-activity, the militancy, the organization of folk who came from Ecuador, from other parts of the United States, uh, working in kitchens, creating a tent uh, or for like holy people, um, and even every morning have a kind having a, his, a history lesson um, just showed me how 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 disingenuous the United States has been and disruptive it has been to uh, indigenous life. Um, the U.S. is on stolen land, as we know, and it has it it has blood on its hands for the genocide that it has created um, indigenous. Uh, towards indigenous people and it continues to do and the fact that the it's denying indigenous people water is absolutely disgusting at best which is um, horrifying um, but it's not that distinct from what we've been seeing in as you've read and as, as you know Flint, Michigan in Detroit um, and so like it, what is happening to indigenous people in the Navajo Nation it's very much parallel has been happening to black people uh, in, in in America. And I think this is this this is where in many ways uh, having a kind of united left, for example, that is concerned about not just a, like the Green Deal in an abstract as like, well, we want environmental policies, but environmental policies that have an anti-racist approach, an anti-colonial approach, one that reckons with the land that people are living on and the, the governmental structure that continues to do harm, both physical and otherwise. Um, I would say that like water, you know, not just in, in the, the US context, but in the Haitian context, part of what created the cholera or allowed the cholera epidemic to, to occur was that the UN um, military was dumping its um, uh, shit, like literally its shit into the Artibonite River, the major river that provides um, the Haitians with, you know, when I say the Haitians, like I'm, I'm a Haitian descent, with Haitians of, uh, for agricultural production, et cetera. And then that was the sort of the, the, the lifeblood of the country. And so in many ways, um, destroying, polluting, or with, withholding water is the very thing that creates many of the health inequalities that we see happening today. Um, and Yemen, you know, being bombed doesn't help with having access to clean water. Um, and, you know, it's people in, like, here in Europe, like, we, I have access to clean water. I'm not being bombed. I have a, a comfortable living situation. That should not be something special. That should be a universal principle on a global scale. And yet, the the fact that that is happening disproportionately to people of color, to indigenous folk, to black folk, is a reflection of how little how little governments like the United States cares for the lives of color. Can you hear me? Absolutely, yes, and thank okay, you. Sorry. 
<laughs> no, no, that was that was a that was a great answer, and I really appreciate it. And uh, I find that uh, the importance of water in these struggles and in, in the conflicts and uh, the kind of organization that you mentioned around protecting the water. And I remember reading and seeing about the 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 kitchens that were being made, and I was just like, wow, that's that that seems like real organizational work that is like structural and has a purpose and has a long-term goal like long-term horizons and kind of like it it seemed a, a type of organizational approach towards fighting against something that i didn't see reflected in uh other protests that i had seen get attention in mainstream media and so forth and so like uh, when you bring that up that just resonated especially again with me um, I wanted to go back a little bit, although this definitely connects. Um, you had mentioned this concept of uh, medical apartheid, and that certainly mm -hmm. relates to um, not only past epidemics and issues that have uh, in, in the health field um, or the area of health, but also now in particular. Um, and we certainly see a sort of stark bifurcation between those who are covered by insurance, those who have access to medical care, those who um, whose bodies are just in better shape um, to deal with a virus like uh, coronavirus or COVID-19 versus those who are not. Um, and what's been fascinating to watch, and, and, and I mean fascinating in the most dark way, of course, um, is that um, in the press, for example, and by certain uh, medical professionals who are affiliated with the Trump administration, the discussion sort of is framed around um, Black and, and Latino uh, Latino populations as though they're bringing it upon themselves. Um, so often when you hear this discussion about, oh, it's affecting people of color more, then it's t it turns into a question of, well, what are people of color what are their eating habits like? Um, what are their health habits like, their lifestyles? Maybe if they were just a little bit healthier, if they weighed a little less, if they had less diabetes, whatever, fill in the blank, um, they would be less susceptible and therefore wouldn't be getting coronavirus and dying. Um, and so I'm, I'm feeling like that kind of tone setting by the general population is what's also, you know, adding to the, the sort of segregation of response um, and you see a very, a very big difference between like protesters and I'm laughing just because it's so absurd that people are protesting, like wearing a mask, right, um, to protect themselves and others. But this idea of like, we're not going to die, we're invincible. And the people who are dying, we just have to trim the fat. We've got old people and black people and Latino, Latinos, who needs them, right? Despite the fact that they're often like people of color are often the frontline workers, not only, and, and I think this is the other thing that's weird, not only in terms of um, like at grocery stores as and as delivery people, but also in the actual hospitals. Like so many people who are working in hospitals um, in a variety of, of capacities are of color, are from immigrant populations, um, quote unquote disposable people for the same people who are going out and protesting and who then might need their life saved by one of these types of um, individuals, right? Um, so I'm curious to kind of know, you know, how does... How does what you've been looking at in past and present work um, kind of correlate to to these divisions? And and I'm also I'm, a, I'm in particular I'm, I'm curious about what you were saying about Haiti um, and Haitian immigrants and and I see some parallels here as well because I grew up in the you know I was born in the 80s I remember when there was the boat lift the Mario boat lift and there was all these discussions about um, you know is it possible that some of the Cubans ended up getting AIDS from these Haitians? And the, the response was different between um, 
you know, the, the popular response was different towards the Cuban boat lift versus the migrants that were coming from Haiti um, and how that was sort of framed in, in, in the press. So I'd be, I'm, I'm just wondering like what you, what your thoughts are, the kind of bridge um, past and present work that you're doing and our current pandemic, especially as it relates to race, migration, um, and sort of, I guess, stereotypes and bias in the medical field. So I would say um, to get to the beginning of your question on medical apartheid, I would highly recommend if people haven't already read Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington, which very much goes into the history of the United States of medicine, power, experimentation, and how uh, specifically the US government and medical practitioners in like the 19th century under slavery and beyond experimented on slaves and free persons and how black bodies are put on some displays or put a part of um, at, um, surgical theaters. And that wasn't unique to the US actually. And here in Europe, uh, there were uh, surgical anatomical theaters that where black people were experimented on in the Netherlands. Here in Germany, there are ways in which um, the, the, the kind of hierarchies um, and particularly uh, pseudoscience that is tied to racism um, impacted who would get uh, experimented on and who wouldn't. And a lot of the, I, I would say, excellent work by people like Dorothy Roberts as well, who wrote this um, very excellent book, Killing the Black Body, Race Reproduction and the Meaning of Liberty, where she tries to unpack some of the stereotypes that um, people had, particularly scientists and practitioners, on Black women's fertility, <laughs> government public programs that coerce thousands of Black women into being sterilized, to ideas about Black motherhood and reproduction, the so-called crack babies and how that then um, impacted public health policies more broadly and how specifically black mothers disproportionately were being criminalized in the late 80s early 90s um, so there's a there's a long history uh, to the vilification of uh, black people and people of color more broadly and a lot of that is tied to either uh, in some cases, wanting us to reproduce the next set of workers, laborers, and slaves. Um, in other cases, experimenting upon us because they didn't see us as fully human. Uh, in other cases, once they were like, well, we're done with them, wanting to sterilize us and wanting us not to uh, reproduce. In fact, um, the state of North Carolina, I was just reading, um, didn't abolish its eugenics program until the 1970s. Uh, 1970s, and in some cases, and, and of the 7,000 people that they had sterilized, 5,000 of them were black. This is this is part of how racism operates in the kind of medical realm or in the history of medicine. That there's no reason. Well, a you should be sterilizing anyone, and two, you know, at the end of the day, you know, our bodies. Um, for a good chunk of the history of the United States weren't our own and we didn't have that autonomy to just live freely. So then when you come then to, you know, circa 2020 and there's a, a pandemic, a global pandemic, it, and you know, you see in not just the US context, but also the, the, the British context in the UK, people who are and in the British context, they call um, people of color, black and minority ethnic in the US, black, you know, and people of color more broadly, um, there is a disproportionate amount of people of color who are being um, 
who are either being uh, infected or um, by the disease, by COVID-19, and or dying from it. And it's not because of our biology. There's nothing about us as individuals, but rather because of the health inequities that exist, racism within the institutions, the fact that we're all off disproportionately on the front lines. So for example, in my family, um, my mother is a, a cleaner, a janitor, and she works at a public hospital in Miami, and she works you know, five days a week, uh, sometimes six. And her floor got turned into a coronavirus floor where she has to clean up and do that labor. There are people, other people in my family, my aunts, who are also cleaners. Um, they go to work every day. <laughs> like um, my uh, cousins, they work as nurses, etc. And so most, like, it's, 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 it's I've recently read a statistic that showed that 80% of Black workers um, can't just work from home. <laughs> they have to actually go physically into a place, like what you mentioned, to the grocery store, to um, work as a cashier in some cases, to be a cleaner, to um, be doing the front line of work. And so just our very exposure is the thing that um, disproportionately impacts us. And I think that the the, the protests that you mentioned aren't unique, actually, to the, unfortunately, to the U.S. Some of that is happening here in Germany as well, where people are protesting, wanting to open things up because it, they see it as infringing upon their um, civil liberties, allegedly. And I, I find it quite delusional, and in some ways, it, it speaks to a certain kind of bias supremacy that white people have and a callousness and selfishness that is... Um, that needs to be challenged outright. And at the end of the day, it's gonna cost the lives of, like you said, um, the frontline workers uh, who are disproportionately um, people of color, who are gonna be exposed to those, those same people who are putting our lives at risk and then we're expected um, disproportionately to be taking care of them. So the thing that I, I find troubling um, in this moment is that it's just another version <laughs> of a long history of, of racism in the medical field, racism in how people see our bodies and the kind of um, incompetence to really honor uh, our lives and our health on a societal level. So turning then to Haiti and Haitians, um, yeah, like there have been heaps of people who've spoken and written about um, uh, Haiti and uh, the relationship between how Haitians were stigmatized for HIV AIDS um, and how uh, Haitians as a, a group, and it was the only ethnic group that was um, blamed for the disease. So the other groups being uh, hemophiliacs, uh, homosexuals, um, etc. And uh, what that then meant in the case of people who were Haitian in you know, places like Miami, New York, etc., that they uh, might not have gotten so been able to live in certain forms of housing, and in some cases, were seen um, being um, just seen as um, being the the less desirable migrant, especially compared to the Cuban population in Miami. Um, and that came then also with uh, certain types of labor that people could have. So most of the the people who migrated in my family um, uh, in the eighties were ended up just working as either day laborers uh, picking um, either picking uh, beans and tomatoes in the fields in some cases they worked in textile industry in some cases they worked as cleaners and so the racialization and stigmatization of who 
their identity and who they were then impacted the kinds of labor, the kinds of opportunities that they could have, especially as um, uh, working class Haitians. Uh, and so this is, it's a, it's a long history and it's, it's very complex and it obviously has personal dimensions, but it, it is something that I, I think that the, what a, a recent example of how, how the racialization of uh, epidemics has played out is what we see with the Ebola virus and particularly how at the time that it arose, it very much impacted the extent to which West Africans then were seen as a vector disease and how migration patterns would happen and uh, the kinds of policies that were put into place. Uh, once that was stifled a bit, uh, it, the, the disease and the kind of um, very racialized I, uh, perceptions about Ebola diminished somewhat, but they haven't necessarily completely gone away. So one of the things that I, I at least as a kind of theoretical framework, try to think about when when unpacking the racialized dynamics of some of these epidemics, some of these um, these things, it's like Ashila Mbembe's notion of necropolitics, where how is it that human existence and particularly black human existence is relegated to a kind of body, bodily autonomy that isn't fully recognized. And, but not just stopping there, like what then do we do about it? Because like all of these major inequalities, like people know about them, they've documented it. It's like if you're a person of color, black person, like you know it's the case. And I think that the, the, the next step, especially if one is committed to like full human liberation um, is like, what do we do? To, to stop <laughs> these injustices from happening, and how do we destigmatize the very people who need the most care? I wanted to ask you too about your work that you had written in um, a few months ago. Actually, I saw that you had several pieces about universal healthcare, um, and as someone who had been traveling between Germany and the UK, obviously you have you know some direct experience and exposure to that um, but your article in particular was about it was sort of a, a warning um, about the ways that uh, universal healthcare and, and the NHS in particular had been sort of underserving the BAME population right um, and how that could potentially spill over into the United States especially considering the pre-existing um, bias in healthcare um, towards you know against I should say um, black and brown people. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that as well, um, because that sort of feeds into what you were just saying about um, some of the exposure and risks that, that people of color already have in the fields that they're sort of forced to work in um, on the basis of economic disparities. Um, if you could talk about that and also kind of, you, you mentioned this in passing, but the way that Germany has been responding to this and what's going on, and you had mentioned also um, some of the anxieties in particular over immigration, um, and obviously you know, world leaders are kind of, some of them at least are framing this as a matter of just like shutting borders and thus shutting out the virus when we know that's not how these things work. Um, so kind of, if you could bridge these two issues and, and discuss for us, um, you know, what's going on on both of those fronts. Yeah, so um, the National Health Service or the NHS, which formed in 1948 in, in the UK, uh, is 
is as a universal health program is one of the best that you can have in terms of centralizing medical care, making it pretty much free for people, and really creating a situation where uh, you are guaranteed care and you don't go into debt for um, going to the hospital. At the same time, um, that system was also built on um, the kind of post-World War II period in which uh, the you know British Empire invited colonial not just colonial subjects but actual citizens people who had been citizens of the the empire uh, so from Jamaica um, formerly in from uh, India etc and many of the uh, people who ended up filling some of those the vacant the, the vacancies that were needed um, for the NHS uh, came from former colonies in some cases and were you know people of color and then later on people from continental Europe and so the the, the foundation of something like uh, the NHS was built on the rain rush uh, so this is the the kind of invitation or so-called invitation from the British Empire to bring people from the Caribbean and beyond uh, to help rebuild uh, the UK. Um, as an institution, um, the NHS has uh, kind of gotten under some scrutiny over the past several years uh, for several reasons. One of them being a, a rise in austerity, so the government cutting back on funding, and so uh, many of the, the services um, aren't, aren't as efficient as they used to be, and a similar privatization in some cases and other parts. So this is a kind of economic situation that is, is quite damaging to a public program that is at the basis uh, is, it should be quite accessible. The other element is the scrutiny around uh, racism, particularly people of uh, Black, um, uh, black and minority ethnic people, whether as patients or as practitioners, have spoken to or uh, indicated um, having painful experiences. And so in the Bachelor article that I, I had written, How They Treat Us, I interviewed several people who um, in some cases were Black British or just uh, Black folk who um, were European um, about their access to care under the NHS and you know they spoke about some of the discrimination that they experienced and in other cases uh, they, they saw it as perfectly fine um, but what one finds is that there is a more likelihood of discrimination based off of one's um, one's experience of being a person of color beyond that uh, and this is where Brexit comes into play that uh, there was an effort by uh, the British Home Office to start um, cracking, cracking down, quote unquote, on migrants or people that, that were not documented in their system and uh, leading to um, the Windrush scandal where people who had been living in Britain for decades were suddenly told that they could not be there. So the, that meant then that they could not access the health services. And so in one case, there's one particular person who uh, sought to access care and had to was originally told to pay like thousands of um, uh, British pounds to uh, continue his cancer treatment. And so things like this were emerging. It's like, well, on the one hand, there was a history to you know people like and the name of that person was Albert Thompson, who was told he had to produce a British passport to access the cancer treatment, and that if he didn't, then he would either have to pay 54,000 pounds or, um, 
or leave. <laughs> and he had been living in Britain at that point for, for several decades. And it's just, to me, um, you know, absolutely scandalous uh, that a medical system could do that. And even though it, it was built <laughs> by the labor of people who had been part of the British Empire, people who were part of, were in the colonial context. So um, reading about you know, this, interviewing people who had had direct experiences with the, the NHS, um, it kind of goes to show that it's not enough to say we have a universal program without actually putting into place um, anti-racist um, policies without actually without actually funding it in the way that it needs to be. So the, the question around austerity is a major issue um, towards why, um, you know, the program, why the NHS um, has been failing, not just um, patients and, and patients, but also doctors and nurses who are part of that system, um, who are uh, overworked and underpaid. So that, that to me, um, or the NHS example is one that should tell us um, if we're going to have Medicare for all in the US context, or not just in the US context, but in Mozambique, <laughs> in Uganda, then it has to be well-funded. <laughs> it has to actually be democratic. It has to um, provide care to everyone and not reproduce discriminatory practices that are um, embedded in society. Turning to Germany, uh, Germany is, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting place to be at the moment in that, insofar that uh, I would say of the European uh, countries, it's done quite well with respect to having a lower death rate um, compared to Italy and UK. Um, early on, uh, there was a lockdown in some of the provinces. And in some cases for people, particularly if you are a freelancer or if you're a person who has lost work, then you could have applied for state funds and the state provided funds quite, quite uh, immediately. Um, and, you know, the, and then beyond that, there's been far more uh, testing compared to like the United States, et cetera. At the same time, and this is the thing that I and others have found disturbing, is that thousands of people have been gathering in cities across Germany, particularly last weekend and weekends prior, to protest the, the current lockdown. And some of those people actually um, are part of radical extremists, anti-vaxxers, anti-Semitic groups. Um, and so there's a, correlel, a parallel between those who are part of these um, protests to um, open up the government um, to end the right wing and conservatives. So it's, it's not that different from the United States with respect to the face of those people. Granted, Germany is, is a majority white country and um, it, there isn't as large of a um, POC population here, but the, we do exist. <laughs> there are people of Turkish descent who've been here for generations. There's been um, a black population here for ages, especially given that Germany um, was uh, had colonies on the African continent, um, Namibia, Tanzania, Cameroon, um, as well as people who are descendants of um, Black Americans who are also here. So there's a complex history of people who are, and then, oh, and I should also say this, which is uh, an Arab population, um, people who are uh, recent refugees from Syria, et cetera, 
uh, who are also here, especially in light of the 2015 um, uh, opening of uh, migration here. So there are people who uh, have various heritage that aren't just European, who live here and see these demonstrations not just in you know small towns uh, or you know Munich and Stuttgart, but here in Berlin um, has 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 been troubling for me. Um, and it also it just it feels quite similar to what I'm seeing on television uh, or on the computer. Actually, I don't have a television <laughs> to what I'm seeing in the U.S. And and part of like it's not the case that you know, leftist, anti-racist people are the ones who are protesting. It's, it's literally white, far-right people. <laughs> so what does that look like? Because are they also posing a threat in terms of, um, you know, access to healthcare? Because one of the things I saw, for example, in Brazil mm -hmm. is that the far-right had been posing, um, they had been doing protests on the roads and thus blocking mm -hmm. access to hospitals for ambulances and thus, you know, obviously limiting access to hospitals for people who are suffering from the symptoms of COVID-19. Um, so what do those, what do the protests look like in the German context and what's been the response by the government? Has it been one to actually protect um, the migrant population, people of color and people who are, and or, you know, people who are suffering from the disease or has there been sort of a response of um, indifference? So there are different responses depending on who people are. So I would say that amongst leftist um, anti-racist groups that I'm aware of and that I know, so there, it's like, for example, the International Women's Space, which has been doing a lot of work around women, migrant refugees to and um, provide aid and care and food services, all kinds of things. Um, and to incur and actually they've been encouraging things like social distancing. Um, there are groups like Ioto Each One Teach One, which is like a, a has been doing a lot of education around um, African diasporic stuff. And so they've been doing a lot of like you know, teach-ins and online stuff. There's uh, people who've been doing mutual aid uh, here in Berlin, uh, where they deliver and make sure that there's food for the homeless and or other kinds of food for people who are physically impaired. And um, there's also been, uh, depending on the neighborhood, in, in the beginning, but not so much now, clapping 7 p.m. in the afternoon for healthcare workers and things of that nature. Um, and then, with there have been particularly in towns in the west as and some here in berlin uh black migrants who are in the refugee camps and in lagas as they call them who've been saying who've been having online uh digital socially distant protests about why social distancing is a privilege and how there should be more services and more uh, facilities that could allow them to actually be socially distant in a, in a similar fashion. Because in some cases, people can be in um, a room like as a, a refugee with like nine other people, poor ventilation, circulation, et cetera. So the people who are actually the most disenfranchised um, and who have an anti-racist leftist policy um, have been quite active in having mutual aid, uh, teach-ins, online forums, and things of that nature. There's another group <laughs> who is on the far right, I would say, um, who've been protesting to fully open up the government to, um, demonstrate in mass which at this point isn't really allowed um and have been doing so 
like often on weekends, not necessarily in the way that you're describing in Brazil. So they're not blocking healthcare workers or not like um, stopping ambulances from coming or anything like that. Um, however, so they're, they're either protesting on the street or in some cases, and I wrote about this in um, Spectre Journal, um, denying that coronavirus is a problem. <laughs> like in some cases, there there've been well, a couple of um, German uh, uh, scientists, I would say they call themselves, who say that well, you know, there's twenty thousand people who die of the flu every year, so this isn't that different. This is just a um, a panic that is being created by, and then they list their what I would call a conspiracy theory, um, and this is this is something that is a bit. It was happening more in the beginning of March, uh, but has somewhat alighted since then uh, because the cases have increased. So one of the, the, the German uh, scientists who um, had a corona denialism was Wolfgang Wodak, uh, who wrote, who had a YouTube video that went viral called Corona Live. And he basically said virologists create something sensational here. Another person, and she's a professor and director of Institute of Medical Virology, Dr. Karen Mullen at the University of Zurich, so that's in Switzerland actually, also um, indicated that coronavirus is not a serious killer and that the real problem is scaremongering. So, <laughs> There are people, whether they're the protesters who have been coming out on some of the weekends to, to want to fully open things up and uh, who've been kind of denying the impact of coronavirus. And then there's people who have a doctorate or PhD who literally are saying that this is um, not a big deal and it's a sensation and it's people die all the time from uh, common cold and flu so what what's the big deal so it's it's been a bit schizophrenic to kind of witness and go like reading some of the stuff and seeing what's going on and while also seeing that as a state and a government the, the German government has actually been doing far more than the US but the thing is it's part of part of the problem is like the barometer shouldn't be the U.S. or what the German state has done up to this point. It should be, it should, we should be expecting like far more. We should be having like free testing on like on demand. We should have like everyone who needs any kind of like assistance, just immediate uh, refugees and migrants who are like these. Like I want more space. <laughs> like I need more space. That should have been the case. Like three, four years ago. Like some of these people have been in refugee camps for years um, and haven't been placed into permanent housing or permanent jobs or anything. And so the coronavirus is actually forcing us to think about, well, what are the problems and issues that have existed and how people been barely surviving and what do, what do we do to readjust with to readjust that of course capitalism is the problem and like the entire system is flawed and the fact that some people are so caught up on the economy and not actual lives and the living conditions that people have has been the thing that um that has 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 revealed like who's on the side of actual people and the working class and then and ensuring that we can survive as as a collective and who just cares about 
the dollar, euro, pound, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's just this is the this is the the the, the debate that's going to determine the extent to which we come out of this, if we do anytime soon, uh, with um, actual policies that improve the lives rather than completely immiserate them. That sounds very familiar. Um, at least the response uh, that you mentioned about the, you know, the academics, at least, who are kind of like, it's no different than the flu. Or I mean, I, I'm tired of hearing this comparison, as we know, and have proof to the contrary. One of the things that you uh, both discussed that stuck out to me was about the frontline workers. And uh, we know that, in, especially in the U.S., that there's been rationing of the PPE gear and uh, the compounding effects of the class and race has meant that a lot of like the frontline nurses have been relegated to the less effective gear while some of the more affluent uh, and predominantly more uh, wider uh, doctors and so forth are given access to the better and more effective gear. And we've seen that trickle all the way down to workers, uh, to like you said, the janitors assigned to the, the COVID floors and elsewhere in the essential businesses that we've seen. And with just the descriptions of what you've talked about, I'm reminded constantly of like MLK's white moderate when you talk about universal health care, where there's a push for a universal program and kind of worrying about the anti-racist part later. And then also of Baldwin's Moral Monsters, when you describe some of the horrors just wrought by Western governments uh, around the world in, in these uh, oppressed places. But uh, one of the things that I was curious about, and I think that you might be able to shed some light on, is just kind of uh, speaking to what I would say is kind of an arguably reasoned skepticism among uh, certain populations of Western medicine and of uh, experimental things versus kind of the anti-vaxxer crowd that you're describing at some of these protests and then balancing that also with as you also mentioned the the kind of capitalist motives behind a rapid uh, development of a vaccine and perhaps uh, safety as not a top concern among some of the actors in that development yeah um i think that well turning to the the rationing that was one of the major concerns I had about my mom when she indicated that her floor was being turned into a coronavirus floor. I, just that what, what did it mean for her to have to, as a worker, a black immigrant woman, et cetera, have to stand up for herself. So she, luckily enough, is in a labor union and her labor union uh, tried to fight for her and not just her, but the other workers to suggest that like, they can't, they have to be provided with adequate equipment. And so there was a period where she wasn't going to work because they didn't have it. Because at first they had suggested um, to, like what kind of what like, you're saying, the dynamic of, well, she's not a doctor, she's not white, um, but to give her lesser materials that would have um, exposed her more to potential um, patients. And uh, luckily she um, was able to uh, avoid that. But if she wasn't part of a, a labor union that was doing, helping to facilitate that work and, and having other workers who also challenged that, then it, could, it would be a different story um, for me to, to, to be talking about this. And so the, there has to be, I would say, in if we're gonna think about labor and the frontline workers who are, who are actually providing that care, labor unions need to step up, the rank and file need to be able to have the, the platform. And, and luckily there, there have been um, 
people writing about this, like Sarah Jaffe, uh, a journalist, has been writing extensively on healthcare workers um, and the extent to which they're they're doing uh, and challenging some of the, the problems in the workplace. So the labor question and what kind of care people are provided uh, is, is going to be something that also is tied to unionization representation and the precarity of labor more broadly um, and it also begs the question uh, what are unions doing to um, to increase their membership and to not just do it with people who are full-time but those who uh, are contracted part-time etc or in some cases even just reaching out to the unemployed it's like we're getting the, the most effective labor struggle we're gonna have is one in which you actually um, aren't just tying yourself to the you know employee but the loving proletariat <laughs> we're just like you know the reserve workers and, and that could potentially be a way to strengthen some of some of these movements you mentioned uh, kind of the the experimental kind of treatments uh, mm -hmm. running from the tuskegee type stuff mm -hmm. and then also the anti-vaxxer crowd though that mm -hmm. is uh, showing up at these kind of open up protests and the people that say that this isn't a problem but then I just, I guess, also was curious about the the impact of the capitalist motives towards the development of vaccine and just kind of how, how or what kind of insight can you provide to navigating that space of, well, these people have a reasonable suspicion of something like a, an experimental vaccine being produced and distributed in Africa, as I've seen being proposed several times but then also not be lumped in with the kind of open up anti-vaxxer crowd and or give that any kind of credence that it, where it doesn't belong. Yeah, so that's a very important um, question, a very good question, especially since particularly the first part and the history of experimentation on black folk and what that would be. Um, as you know, uh, the pres French president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, had suggested that, or not suggested, and made the request that perhaps Africa could be the place to potentially test a, a coronavirus vaccine. And that caused a, a huge uproar, um, specifically because, you know, people, Africa has been a laboratory, unfortunately, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't be. And so uh, the French have no business to further um, cause harm on that continent. And uh, I, I would say that it is important for us to, to um, question and challenge any form of experimentation, uh, especially those that are tied to neo-colonial regimes uh, in the current moment. And, and tied to that, I, yeah, you, you point up a, a good point, you, you make a good point about what does it mean to, um, in a sober manner, uh, recognize that there are for-profit pharmaceutical companies that are now on the race to find a coronavirus uh, vaccine, and what does that kind of um, economic incentive mean for uh, like us as people who could potentially benefit from that, and or what does it mean to re-envision or to have another kind of model for developing a um, vaccine that isn't so profit-driven. Um, I, would, I would say that there are a couple of things that we, would, we should be pushing for, which is that uh, it shouldn't be like private pharmaceutical companies doing that work. Um, in fact, it should be uh, state-driven uh, physicians, scientists, et cetera. In fact, 
like a lot of public universities, whether it's um, University of Washington, University of California, those are publicly funded universities that should be getting that funding to develop those vaccines as opposed to a private corporation. There's no reason why Pfizer should be getting a, a kind of cut, a government cut to, to develop something versus uh, state universities that have actually been um, very much defunding and experiencing austerities since the 2008 crisis. And so what, part of what I would say needs to happen if there's gonna be a nuanced kind of way of dealing with this tension between for-profit pharmaceutical companies that are trying to develop a vaccine versus the reality of wanting something that can benefit human, like the majority of, of people, is to, to reshuffle where these government-funded uh, initiative and programs uh, go so that that can actually be more state-driven. Because if it is more state-driven, then it actually ensures that it's not going to undergo the model of having some, you know, high, high you know, an expensive patent and then uh, be expensive to reproduce and then creating further inequalities once that once that medication is produced. And part of why that matters is because when um, antiretroviral therapy was first developed, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't cheap. And what that meant was that by the you know, late 90s, um, when people needed treatment for HIV AIDS in um, Southern Africa, they, they couldn't afford it. And it wasn't until people protested, particularly South Africa, Uganda, etc., and to lower the prices that the rate of HIV AIDS decreased on the African continent. And so the, the question about pricing for drugs, vaccines, et cetera, can, cost, can actually cost lives. And so there, if, if there needs to be, I would say, if, uh, from a leftist perspective, from a kind of health policy perspective, to say that we, can't, we can no longer be funding, uh, especially using government funding, to help uh, pharmaceutical companies developing these, these vaccines and or medical advancements, but that that has to be put towards already existing state universities, institutions, uh, who could then ensure that that stuff is readily available and isn't going to be on a for-profit um, patented system. I think that's an excellent point, and mm -hmm. especially with regards to funding the state uh, universities, particularly because not only with the austerity that they've been experiencing, as you mentioned, since 2008, but also with the dramatic cut in funding that they're experiencing, and some governors are already looking to cut their funding further to make up the shortfall from the lack of tax revenue resulting from the pandemic. But uh, with that, Wendy, I think you wanted to get in there? Yeah, so um, switching gears just a little bit before we close, I had some questions for you, or a general question actually, about academia. Um, considering you're in academia and you're doing a postdoctoral fellowship, correct? Um, how is that going in the pandemic, first of all? What is your trajectory now, um, considering what's happening um, and your work? And then also, kind of, how do you see um, academia as a whole changing amid the pandemic? And what are some steps, perhaps, as researchers, scholars, um, people in the, in the field, but also those who are interested in helping? What do you think our role could be going forward to make sure that the education system as a whole doesn't completely collapse and turn into like some capitalist hellscape that I foresee, unfortunately? 
Um, so I would say a couple things. I'm, I'm currently in academia um, it, as a postdoctoral fellow, but my fellowship ends this summer. So I will be unemployed <laughs> after this summer. Uh, so my trajectory is uh, a bit uncertain with respect to uh, having a permanent position. And that isn't unique to me. In fact, uh, as you might know, uh, there are less uh, tenured or permanent positions that are available for the amount of people who have uh, PhDs and the neoliberalization of universities over the past several decades has been contributed to that. And we see, as uh, Richard pointed out, with the kind of austerity that's happening at the you know, California state system or Wisconsin, et cetera, that at the end of the day, um, that, yeah, we're, there's just not a guarantee that just because you have a PhD, you'll be able to have a position. And beyond that, uh, people, particularly governors and university administrators, are using this virus and this pandemic to do the, like, the ill will of either fire people, this happened in, I think it was in Ohio, uh, they just fired a bunch of um, non-tenured people and using the pandemic as a license to do so. Uh, or in some cases, jobs that were supposed to be permanent are suddenly not a short-term contract positions. Um, so there is, I would say, um, it's not a new crisis, but now a, a further uh, like measure in the crisis for, for academia and, and as a whole. And some of that is pushing people. I, I was speaking to someone from my former institution because we were part of a unionization um, drive or attempt at Princeton for grad students. And um, now because of people are suddenly without a certain kind of compensation, etc., cetera, um, or are, are not able to do the research, they're organizing. And, this is a moment to organize, I would say, if a person is affiliated with an academic institution, uh, because if we don't, then uh, they can easily, as university administrators, etc., get away with uh, terminating positions. And um, that, that is something that I, that I, yeah, I fear. I think that part of what is difficult, and it's not just related to academia, is that for a generation like myself, who I moved to New York City in 2008 to start grad school, and I that was when the crash happened, <laughs> and I've been living through it ever since. Through and, and it's not just you know not having certain opportunities, but it's been tied to having student loan debt at $120,000 at this point. And it's tied to not having a home. <laughs> it's tied to not having a permanent job and figuring out, like, in my own way, what it means to survive in a world that wasn't built for Black scholars to really exist and be confident and fully present in some of these majority white spaces. So I'm, I'm figuring that out. <laughs> I, I guess what I could say is that for the time that I have in the academic sphere, I have what I've been trying to do as much as I can is to bring voice to the groups that I've encountered and met who often didn't have one. Uh, people, so for example, um, 
interviewing recently a transgender black migrant who lives here in Germany about their um, access to health, and their um, transitioning process and what that looks like and what role that may have in, you know, them moving through this world or in some cases, um, you know, chatting with, uh, I was about a month and a half, two months ago, uh, a migrant refugee from from Kenya and their experience here in Germany and their organizing efforts. And, and that has in some ways given me so much more inspiration than going to the academic conference. So in some ways, um, the, 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 the actual work of connecting to humans and people and to figure out what we can do to, to, to build the, the world, or to work on building the world that we want, has been what I've been committed to <laughs> recently. And it's been, it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful to, to see the bravery of the Black Indigenous POC climate activists here in Germany and Berlin um, who are challenging the, the coal dependency that Germany has, um, or to really learn from uh, the various Afro-Deutsch people and learning about the Black German history here. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, I would say that with the future of academia, it's going to be a future that's going to have to, um, A, be organized by, like, well, A, people have to see themselves as workers and to organize accordingly, um, B, to make actual demands where we demand, um, full employment <laughs> and guaranteed employment, um, we have to actually have spaces that are not just um, somehow uh, siphoned off or feel like it's an ivory tower, but actually accessible to communities. You can't have a situation, and I witnessed this when I was doing my master's at Columbia, Harlem, not where Harlem residents don't feel comfortable walking to, onto Columbia. Like there can't be that kind of division with an extremely rich university um, towering itself over a community and making it itself inaccessible. Um, universities have to be truly universal <laughs> to um, a wide range of people. And so I, I think that, that that is gonna then require those who are in privileged positions within the universities, so tenured people, people who have you know, full salaries, et cetera, to, to help do that work um, so that there isn't this division or this hazing or a, a, a hierarchical system where people are just pushed out and disproportionately, unfortunately, uh, people of color, people from working class backgrounds, people who are migrants. And, and I've seen, especially over the past uh, couple of years, colleagues of mine, friends of mine who are from similar backgrounds like myself, like person of color, immigrant background, working class, and who grew up working poor, that we don't end up making it. And, and that's just uh, the kind of um, ways in which academia actually often reproduces the people who come from more you know, uh, wealthy and or upper class backgrounds. So yeah, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know if I have, um, hope in it <laughs> and i'm not sure if i uh can do much to help change it as an individual who may not be in it, uh, academia for that much longer but for the time that i have left i think i'll continue to um be 
at, to ask questions, to agitate, um, to have uh, co-researchers with the people that I know who I honor respect and who, who do the same towards me and hope that one day it will change. Here's hoping, uh, especially now as universities are trying to act like nothing is happening all of a sudden. I keep seeing alerts that like <laughs> schools are just going to reopen in the fall, like there's no pandemic and no no like major economic crisis and no um, people who are like homeschooling their kids and doing the cooking and the cleaning and the care and all of that on top of working. Um, we'll see how that goes. Uh, Send over those tuition <laughs> checks and we'll figure it out afterwards. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but we'll see. But anyway, listen, uh, I hope that the project work that you're doing, um, you know, I know you have your hand in several things that we, we talked about a bit in the intro, but um, I definitely think that that will all have an impact. And I hope that going forward, you know, you can find your your place there, um, wherever you end up in and that it's healthy and happy and fulfilling for you. And for all of us, to be honest, I think we're all kind of like looking at the horizon and going, wait a second, what happened to my career or potential career? Um, so this might be, despite how tragic it, it has been and is, um, it might be a kind of turning point for a lot of us to really put our feet in different waters, uh, but we'll see, we'll see what happens. Oh. One thing I would say is, I totally forgot to mention this, which is uh, one place that I put my foot into is podcasting. So through my, the podcast that I run um, or co-run called Decolonization in Action, and in some ways um, that has been such a fulfilling uh, platform for me to be able to experiment with sound and to meet new people and to, as an introvert, force myself to talk to people <laughs> and construct a conversation of sorts. And it actually gives me a, a kind of, I, I, like more people listen to my podcast, I imagine, than uh, reading an academic journal article but, you know, I write or so there's also that, that element just like accessibility in terms of language and conversations that um, published pieces in journals may not always provide. Absolutely. It's always a different, it's always nice to have kind of a different space um, to talk about those issues. And on that note, I would love to have you back as well to talk about your work on um, like kind of repatriation projects and tourism mm. in Africa, which is amazing. That's like a totally separate issue that I'm super interested in. Yeah. Um, and especially thinking about colonialism that's practiced or like kind of forms of colonialism practiced through tourism and that mm. unfortunately people of color and descendants of the very places mm. where they're going mm. can kind of uh, reinscribe and reiterate and exacerbate. Um, so we definitely have, we need to have you on for another time. Um, and we'll definitely put out, this is a, you opened with uh, talking about, uh, undoing imperialism with your scholarship and building relationships on the ground. And mm -hmm. that really resonated with me. And I think that, uh, these, uh, this, this struggle gives us the opportunity to kind of see each other in the struggles that we face internationally and locally and also see each other in our successes. And so, the work that you're doing is an inspiration to me and so in the relationships that you're developing are inspirational to me and you mentioned uh introversion as well and so like all those types of things are very helpful towards me and so like uh, i i wish i had uh, somebody to look toward like I, you mentioned also i guess the absence of the stories of achievements of scientists and mm. uh, academics outside of the kind of european sphere and so uh i 
I'm glad that you, you can be a part of uh, a next generation story. And I'm just pleased to hopefully help uh, other that generation discover your amazing work. Thank you. Yeah, it's, I don't know, I think it's an uncertain time, so I'm feeling all kinds of things of, yeah, like I said, I don't know what I'm gonna happen, what's going to happen after the summer, and I'm trying to work through that, because um, at the end of the day, certain people get awarded and others don't. <laughs> um, uh, listen, thank uh, you so much, Edna, for being a guest. Um, for those of you who are interested, of course, follow up with her. There's information in, as always, uh, the show notes more information where uh, Edna's work can be found and her podcast, et cetera. So please check that out. Um, and as always, thank you all so much for listening and have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Left Pocket Project. As per usual, you can find us on social media by searching for Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. And of course, you can find us on Patreon, where everything is free, all of the resources, all of the episodes, and that's something that we plan to keep on doing for the rest of the duration of the podcast. Um, but I wanted to just remind everyone that if you can spare a dollar or two or more uh, at the moment, please feel free to add us to your giving list. Um, we use your funds for everything related to the podcast. It all goes back into the podcast, but also out into the community. Everyone, thanks again. Please stay safe, stay at home, protect yourselves, your family and friends. And um, yeah, just try to support each other in these times. I know it's kind of cliche and everyone's tired of hearing that, but it's something that we definitely need to do and uh, make sure that we look out for one another. So anyway, be safe, be careful, and we'll talk to you soon.